we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read two verses right here. So go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 1. It's right at the beginning of your Bible, by the way. Um, But Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, I'm just going to read the first three verses right here to start, and then I'm going to read you a verse from Proverbs. The Proverbs verse will also be on the screen, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. I'm going to read the first three verses of Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then Proverbs three nineteen, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, by understanding he established the heavens, by his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Uh, Well, like I mentioned, today we're starting a series called God's Great Story. We have been in the book of Mark for several months, um, and it's been a joy. I don't know if you've experienced what I've experienced, but it has been an absolute joy to study the book of Mark. And we'll be there, we'll return there in a few weeks, and we'll be in Mark until July. And the reason we're taking a break right at this moment is because the book of Mark is split into two halves. We've got Uh, Part one, which is everything up until Mark chapter eight, and then everything after Mark chapter eight is known as part two. So it worked out nicely for us to take a pause from that and then work our way toward Easter. And we thought it would be good to look, do a series called God's Great Story, that the Bible is a book that consists of many topics, right? There's many books within the within the Bible. It It spans centuries, yet the Bible, despite being written by multiple authors with various subjects, the Bible is one grand story about God himself. It's about his name. It's about his glory. And so in this series, we're going to look at the story of the Bible, uh, the story of God within its four parts. So you have creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. And what we're going to see is that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it is one story that God has written about his, himself. It's centered on his name and his glory and how he perfectly, he is perfectly and completely satisfied within himself. He has graciously chosen to reveal himself to us. And it's no accident that God has structured his word to us as a story, Right? Because he's designed us as human beings to love stories, to resonate with stories, to understand stories and learn from stories. So let me give you an example. Okay. If I told you a story about a kid born and raised in West Philadelphia, his life got turned and twisted upside down. On the playground is where he spent most of his days. He was chilling out, maxing, relaxing all cool, shooting some b-ball outside of the school. When a couple of guys that did what? They were up to no good, right? They started making trouble in his neighborhood, and his mom got mad and said, right, she said, hey, you're moving with your auntie and uncle to Bel Air. Now, for the millennials in the room, you couldn't help but start doing that with me, right? Now, who didn't know what we were doing? Awesome. Hey, look, you're not a millennial. I'm sorry. Um, But for us millennials, we grew up watching... Will Smith and Fresh Prince of the Bel-Air. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We all watched it on TBS or TNT right after 
school. But I remember that show and so many scenes in it because it resonated with me. As a kid, we love stories. I still remember the scene, right, where Will's dad leaves. He makes all these promises to him. He leaves, and then him and Uncle Phil have this emotional moment, and Will says, man, how come he don't want me, man? And Phil just wraps him up in a big hug. Man, as a 10-year-old, I'm bawling at the TV, right? We resonate with stories. And God has wired us to hear his story and resonate with it. And today we begin with part one of the story, creation. We'll primarily be in Genesis 1 and 2, but let me clarify. I mentioned this earlier. Genesis 1 and 2 is not simply about creation. It's about the God of creation. It's about his story. Because when you look at creation, you see the creator, right? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. If you want to understand the artist, then you have to look at their art. If you want to understand who Taylor Swift is, then you have to look at her music, and you would determine that she has a very bad romantic life, right? I mean, the art shows us the artist. And by looking at the God of creation, we get a lens into the heartbeat of God into what he's about. And the story starts off by saying in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the God who saved you, those who have your, put your faith in Christ, the God who adopted you, who chose you, he made everything. There was nothing that existed before him. God was not created. He was the creator. Before anything was, God was. He was. The heavens and earth, it's just another way of saying from head to toe, everything that exists, he made it. God was not created. He was the creator. The very God that grabbed you and pulled you from death to life, he saved you, and he created everything around you. Now, just a side note, I am, if you know me, I am not a scientific-minded per- person, and you could go through Genesis 1, and you could get into all kinds of science, but I'm not going to harp on the science Uh, very much. I'm going to focus more on the biblical narrative. But what's interesting about verse 1 is that you have everything you need scientifically to create a world, right? If you think about what is required for the creation of a world, you have it all here in verse 1. You need space, you need time, you need mass, you need a pre-existent prime mover, and an initial energy to make everything happen. And in verse 1, you get in the beginning, time. You get God, your pre-existent time mover. You get created, that initial energy, the heavens, space, and the earth, mass. Everything you need for the world to exist is present in verse 1, and I find that fascinating. Like I said, I'm not a scientific-minded person, but even I understand that. And so if you are scientific-minded, sermon's over for you. Just kidding. Um, But in verse 2, God gives us a negative situation. Verse 2, he says, The earth was without form and void, And darkness was over the face of the deep. We have a negative situation. It was formless and void. Those words in Hebrew are tohu and bohu, which I've always thought was funny. Tohu and bohu, right? Void uh, and formless. Uh, Formless and void. So there's nothing, there's no form, and there's nothing to fill it. So at the beginning of all things, it was chaos. There was no form. And it was empty. There was no life. And what does God do? Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. When chaos and emptiness is present, the Spirit comes, and he begins to bring life. Now, you ever wondered where the first place we see the gospel in the Bible is? 
Well, next week we'll talk about Genesis 3.15, and that's where I typically go. But as I was studying this week, I thought, one could argue, one could argue that it's right here, because this is all of our stories. We were all lifeless, and before Christ and the Spirit woke us up, our lives were chaos. We were all empty, and in the midst of the deadness of the chaos and the emptiness, the Spirit came and made us alive. He brought order to our chaos, showed us our purpose, and brought us from death to life. When it says the Spirit was hovering over the face of the water, that doesn't mean the Spirit was just up there flapping. The word hovering, it's used one other time in the Old Testament. It's used in Deuteronomy when it talks about a mother eagle hovering over its young. The idea is that he cares. That word hovering, it communicates intimacy. And when the Spirit comes, he brings life to creation. It's personal. God cares about what he makes, and out of chaos, God begins to set the foundation of the world, and with every step, he says it's good. With everything he makes, he says it's good, it's good, it's good. By the way, uh, did you, if you notice, if you read through it, uh, day two is Monday. There is no good for Monday, which seems appropriate, right? God hates Mondays, so we hate Mondays. Um, why is that? I, I can't really fully explain it to you, but the number seven is the number of perfection, in the Bible, so you'll see it over and over throughout scriptures. And if you notice, God gives, no, it is good on Monday, but he gives two on Tuesday. So if if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would always get married on Tuesday. You would never get married on Monday because Tuesday got two goods. Tuesday's a good day. So when Tuesday comes in a couple days, just remember that God gave you two goods on that day. So do something fun because it's a good, good day, right? But by Tuesday, you have all your form. All your structures are in place. Tohu, is taken care of, sea, air, and land. And in days four, five, and six, Bohu is taken care of, that he will take these formed things and he will breathe life into them. Now, what's the point as you go throughout these days? I think one of the points is that our God is meticulous with how he creates. He does not do it by accident or with a hope that it might succeed. Every piece of creation is intentional. And that's no different with us. Everything that God does with us is intentional. Our life was without form, and it was void. The Spirit breathed life into our lives. And God begins to give us structure, right? God begins to give us structure. He makes us alive, and then he builds into our life a structure that gives us joy. He gives us the structure of spending time in his word, of spending time in prayer, spending time with his people, that he breathes life into us, and then he gives us a structure to walk with him in this life. The Christian life is no different than what God did at creation. It's God doing it. He gives us a structure. He fills up our life with the Spirit, and he gives us a way into which to walk with him, right? And life grows from that. God gives us the stars to govern us, to guide us. He gives us the sun and the moon. He tells us when to wake up. He tells us when to go to sleep. And and here's one thing that's interesting. In the ancient Near East, it was believed that the sun was an angry God. The sun was angry at us. It was an angry God. And um, the moon was a product of one God violating another, right? So if you would have been alive during the time that Moses wrote Genesis, that was your belief. The sun was an angry God that was mad at you, and the sun was a result of sexual assault. So when they looked at the heavens, all they saw was brokenness. All they saw was brokenness. But in the story of creation, 
we see a God who cares for you. He puts you to bed. He wakes you up. He guides you by the stars. Everything is intentional. Day five, he creates all the animals. Uh, We even get the sea monsters, which as a teenager I always found fascinating. The ESV calls them the great sea creatures. Now why mention that? Because in the ancient Near East, they were terrified of the sea and of the monsters that inhabited them. There are all kinds of sea monsters that appear in the Bible, and they all sound terrifying. You've got uh, Tannin, Rahab, Leviathan, all names of these scary sea monsters. Right? And in Genesis 1, God wants us to know that these creatures that we see as terrifying, he created them. And in the book of Psalms, we find out why he created creatures like the Leviathan. Psalm 104.25, he says, Here's the sea, great and wide, with teams, with creatures innumerable living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. So why did God create these terrifying creatures? So they could play in the sea. The NIV uses the term frolic, which I used to love, right? God created these terrifying creatures, the the terrifying creature, the the Leviathan, so that he could frolic in the sea. I love that, right? Uh, I heard someone say like this one time, um, the things that the world fears God uses as his rubber ducky. I thought that was funny. Um, I don't remember who said it, but it's always stuck with me. But what's the point with something like the sea creatures? The point is, the things that terrify people are insignificant to God. He is that powerful. He is that big. He has that much authority. It's our God. He's bigger and stronger than the things that we fear. By day six, we learn the why. Why is he making all this? Why is he doing this? He starts and talks to himself. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you go, wait, did God just talk to himself? Yeah, he did. And here we see one of the pillars of our faith, that we have one God who exists in three persons. We have a triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And here they're talking to themselves. Right? If they're talking to themselves. If you paid close attention, you saw them in the first three verses. Verse 1, you have the Father, Father who created the world. Verse 2, you have God speaking. John 1 tells us that that is Jesus, who is the Word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 3, you have the Spirit. That it's the Trinity that is creating this place. And just like creation, it is through the Trinity in which we are saved. Did you know that? Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that it is the Father who chose to rescue us. It is the Son that redeemed us through his death and resurrection. And it is the Spirit who convicts us and brings us from death to life. All three of them are present in creation, and all three of them are present in our salvation. I think it's amazing. So when we think about the purpose of life, When we think about who God is, everything points back to a triune God. That God has loved himself perfectly since the beginning of all things. That the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father, and so on it goes. And in creation, in this moment in Genesis 1, what we see is a perfect community, a perfect relationship. C.S. Lewis calls it the dance, right? Some of you may have heard this before that each person of the Trinity, they're in a fluid dance with one another. They are never separated. 
They are always together. Not one of them doesn't dominate over the other, but they revolve around one another perfectly, and they serve one another. And God, in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates humanity. He says, I'm going to create a people. I'm going to create them in my image, and I'm going to make them to find their joy in this relationship. Find your joy, find your purpose in me. I remember when I was a, a youth minister, I was serving at First Baptist Church of Holland. There wasn't a lot of young people at that church. It was like kids, some teenagers, and then like 40 or older. Most of the church was like over 60. And I remember feeling pretty lonely, like as a 21-year-old, pretty lonely at the time. And I'll never forget, there was this couple named Marvin and Beverly Ralston that started coming to the church. They're my wife's grandparents, but she wasn't my wife at the time. So I, funny story, I met all of Katie's family before I even knew her. And so I never got like the meet the family moment, which is awesome, uh, because I was basically part of her family. But I meet Marvin and Beverly Ralston, and they invited me to come to their house after church one day. And I'll never forget walking into their house and just feeling the chaos of the Ralston family, okay? I walk in, and there's like, it, there's no like, hey, Colton, how are you? Like, hey, everyone, this is Colton. He's the youth minister. Hey, Colton, tell me about yourself. It was like, grab these potatoes, make some sweet tea, get to work. And then they started like making fun of me out of nowhere. Like, it, these are strangers. And they're like, oh, you're a youth minister? When are you going to get a real job, right? And I'm like, who are you? And so I just started like throwing zingers back at them myself. And it was this weird, surreal experience of like, I was never the center of attention. It wasn't about me. It was as if this community was already happening before I got here. It's going to continue after I leave. And the invitation for me in that moment was just, just be a part of it. Just be a part of it. Just come join it. And I remember as a 21-year-old, that was the best thing that could have happened to me. It was the most satisfying and joyful experience that I had had uh, as a young minister. I was invited into a community, and God creates a place. He invites us into a loving relationship already in progress. Come and enjoy us. Now, where that analogy falls apart, right, between that story and our relationship with God is that we were invited into this relationship to enjoy God in worship, to enjoy him in worship. You were designed. You and I were designed. Every person on the planet was designed to worship God, you were designed to find your joy and satisfaction in worship. That is why every person on the globe was created. So God makes two people. He gives them both dignity. He uses sexual terms. He says, I will make one male in my image, and I will make one female. The imagio Dei, the image of God. Three times he will say, I created them, I created them, I created them. It was on purpose that you were created. And it was on purpose that you were created the way that you are, as male, as female, the family that you were born into, every detail of your life. It was on purpose that God created you that way. Your design was purposed by God. And so when it comes to these things, we have to be careful about how the world talks about them, that they don't let us confuse us on who, what we were designed to be right? You will not find your joy outside of your design. It will not happen. You were designed a very specific way. And then on the last day, God rests. He looks at his creation, 
and he steps back to enjoy it. And we're meant to do the same, that we are meant to take, take a step back one day a week and enjoy God. In Mark, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus says in Mark 2.27, it says, He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not for man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord, even on the Sabbath. In other words, this day isn't about not working, it's about enjoying. When God rests, he enjoyed himself. And his creation is meant to do the same. And so the purpose of the Sabbath isn't to just not do stuff. It's to enjoy the goodness and glory of God that we were made to enjoy him and to worship him. And so if you're going through life attempting to enjoy other things and finding it unsatisfactory, it's because you've taken something like your iPhone and you've tried to use it to butter your toast. It doesn't make sense, right? It's an iPhone. You don't use it as Butter, and so many of us have misunderstood our purpose, that we were created to enjoy God, to worship God. Anything else is unsatisfactory and outside of your design. He is the only thing that is truly enjoyable. Everything else falls short. Now, I want you to notice something. As the text moves from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we see a a name change for God. I don't know if you've ever caught this. Um, We see a name change from God, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we only see God, okay? That's the name for God. God, El, or Elohim. Um, it carries the idea that he has power and authority. He rules all things. But when we get to verse 4 in chapter 2, the name shifts from God to the Lord God. That as the focus of creation moves from God's relationship to the world to God's relationship to humanity, um, his name changes. It's not just Elohim. The all-powerful God is not just God, it's the Lord God. That's the personal name for God, Yahweh. It carries the idea of intimacy. And in that name, we have the existence of two realities about God. We see it when God meets with Moses in the burning bush, that at the core of God, there are two realities. One, that he is above us. He is powerful. He is outside of time. He is undefinable. And second, that he is with us. The theological terms for those are transcendent and imminent. So transcendent, he is bigger, he exists outside of us, he is above us. And then imminent, he is with us, he is involved in our lives and in our circumstances. And this understanding of God, it's uniquely Christian, that there is an all-powerful God who has all authority in the universe. He exists outside of time, but also, man, he cares for you. He's present with you. He loves you. Exodus 3.13, it says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this to the people, I am has sent me to you. Now, if I say I am, it's always going to follow with something, right? I am a pastor. I am a husband. But God doesn't have to do that. This is God's personal Name. It's the name that we see in Genesis chapter 2. This is God basically saying, I am who has always been, and I am who always will be. God stands on his own. There's nothing that fully defines him. He just is. He isn't made in anyone's image. We are made in his, but, man, he's also with us. Exodus 3, 7, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them 
out of the hand of the Egyptians. That the God who has all power and all authority, the God who exists outside of time, he hears his people's cries. He knows their suffering. And he has come down to deliver us. And in the moments of doubt and suffering, we find assurance and knowing that the God of the universe, the creator God, he's with us, and in him we find intimacy. He binds us to himself, as we'll see through the rest of the story. He binds himself to us in covenant love. Yahweh, personal name of God, he has revealed it to his people, to his chosen, adopted children. So listen, God sees you, even right now, it's, it's, it, for some of us in here, it's hard to just sit and listen to the word being read out loud sometimes because there's so much hurt and pain. You wonder, why was I created like this? He sees you. He hears you. And if your faith is in Christ, if he's grabbed you, he has bound your life with his. You are his son. You are his daughter. And Christ's blood has been shed on your behalf. So the pain that you feel, I will never understand it. You'll never be able to communicate it well enough for any of us in this room to fully understand it. But he does. And he has not left you. He has created you for a purpose. And he is with you. He has made you for intimacy. I mean, even in the way that he creates us is intimate. I mean, look at Genesis 2.6. Look at Genesis 2.6. It says, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. One commentary I read this week said, this moment has the intimacy of a kiss. So what is man made of here? Dust and wind. Dust of the ground and the breath of God. The word for breath um, it's the same word that's used for wind. It's the same word that's used for spirit. In the Hebrew, it's the word ruha. When you get to the New Testament in Greek, it's the word pneuma. So the breath of God, the spirit of God, the wind of God, these phrases are used interchangeably throughout the Bible. And God uses his breath, his spirit, to breathe life into our lungs. It's incredibly intimate. The love that which you and I were created. And the great tragedy of the next chapter, Genesis 3, is that we will lose the breath, breath of God. Everything breaks. He tells Adam, Adam in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's not mentioned there? The breath of God. The breath of God is gone. All that remains is dust. The Spirit of God in our brokenness deserts us. And as we'll see in the great narrative of the rest of the Bible, is humanity's longing for the Spirit of God to return, for his breath to fill our lungs again. When you get to the New Testament, the people look to John the Baptist and they say, are you the guy? And he says, no, I baptize with water, but the one who's coming, he does what? He baptizes with the Spirit. He brings the wind of God back. When Jesus shows up and preaches his first sermon, he says, the wind of God is with me. You remember what Jesus said after he uh, died and he rose from the the dead and he meets with his disciples? 
John 20, verse 21, it said, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the tragedy of the fall was that the intimacy with God was lost. And Christ's coming is a declaration, I'm bringing the wind back. I'm bringing the Spirit back. That he brings us back to life. If I could give you just one word to remember as you walk out of here today, it would be the the word shalom. Anybody ever heard of that word, shalom? A few of you. It's a difficult word to translate into English because we've got no word that's really equivalent to it. Um, The closest word we have to it is peace, but honestly the word peace doesn't communicate the idea of shalom because when we think of peace, we think just about the absence of the negative, right? Or the absence of conflict. Nothing too bad is happening. But shalom isn't only the absence of bad things, but it's also the presence of good things. Like we don't just long for just peace in our marriages if we're married. If we're honest, we long for shalom. It's not just that conflict is absent, but it's also all that is good is present. It's not just that we're not fighting, but it's that we are enjoying one another and we are thriving. It's the idea of all is as it should be. That's the idea of shalom. All is as it should be. Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. That as God looked at what, he, at what he's going to create, he says, There's, he says, in my wisdom, I will determine how the rhythm of the world works. It will be as I plan it to be. All is as it should be. And in his wisdom, he created perfection in Genesis 1 and 2. It was perfect. It was as it should be that a perfect God created a perfect world and we were meant to enjoy him as he designed us to enjoy him. But as we'll see next week, shalom was lost. All was as it shouldn't be, right? And that's the burden that we feel today. We look around and we go, this isn't right. Like you're talking in hypotheticals, Colton, because I don't experience that world. Anybody feel like that? All is not as it should be. The rest of the Bible is humanity longing for the shalom to return. But here's the deal. The people of God, we look to a creator who has a track record of redemption. We hold on to a promise that all that was will be restored. And there's something in us, even though we're broken, we're still wired. There's something in us that says, This isn't right. The world is not as it should be. And the promise is that he's coming to return to make all things new. Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I heard something interesting about this, that uh, little phrase, the sea was no more. The sea is believed to be the place of darkness and and death. and the idea that the sea is no more is this idea that at that point, if, if the sea is darkness, there will be a day when all sin is wiped away. And so the sea, just as our sins, will be no more. Um, I found that interesting. But he says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Jerusalem 
literally means the city of peace, the city of shalom. And that city of shalom is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. See, there's a separation that we're going to talk about next week. God's renewing it all. He says he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You have a God who has created all things, even you. And yes, right now, things may not feel like they are as it should be. But we hold on to the promise that he's brought the wind back. That right now, each of us who had claimed the blood of Christ, the Father has chosen us, the Son has redeemed us, and the Spirit has come into our lives to convict us, then we believe, we get this taste of this new heaven and new earth that we are sojourners in this place. This is not our home, but one day he's bringing us home. There's a song we're going to sing in a minute. Um, and the idea of the song, and I love the premise, says I'm, I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. I love that idea. That each of us, each day, I mean, we're fighting these battles and they feel like they're nonstop, and we try to distract ourselves with things of the world, and then we go down a rabbit hole, and we found ourselves in sin, and we don't know how we got there. Um, but the battles that we fight, what we have to understand is, man, there is a promise that we hold on to that victory has already come, and it's so hard to wrap our minds around that. So, like, actually put ourselves in that truth and live in it, right? Like, it's easy to stand on the outside of it and look at it and go, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. It's hard for us to look at that truth and stand inside of it and say, no, I believe that. I believe that the battle's been won. And that actually has an effect on how I think, on how I live. So my prayer as we sing this song in a moment and as we go into a time of worship is that you would ask God to put you inside of that truth. That you would say, God, I know that you've created me I know you've designed me for your worship and I know that you have won the battle through the blood of Christ and you're coming back again to renew all things. That we would, as a family, as followers of Christ, we would be able to step into that truth and have it affect how we live.